From the Center for New American Security, this is Stories from the Back Channel, the podcast about pivotal moments in national security as told from the inside. I'm Elon Goldenberg, the director of CNAS's Middle East Security Program. Today, all discussions on foreign policy in Washington start with a focus on China. We now have a a big investment in each other and in getting along with each other. But that wasn't the case 10 years ago. When Barack Obama came into office in 2009, China was an afterthought. Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, a huge global financial crisis to deal with, and the global threat of terrorism dominated the agenda. And yet despite all these concerns, there was a growing recognition that China's rise may be the single most important geopolitical story of the 21st century. So the administration decided to focus their attention east in a policy known as the pivot to Asia. So I want everyone to know, and I want everybody in America to know, that we have a stake in the future of this region. Because what happens here has a direct effect on our lives at home. Kurt Campbell was not only one of the biggest advocates for this policy, but also one of the main people tasked with helping to implement it. His role in the State Department as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs meant that he was on the front lines for major policy decisions. My kind of abiding proposition beginning in about the mid-2000s was that the United States at a strategic level had taken a dramatic turn away from regions of profound consequence. What I was trying to basically argue was we needed to rebalance our portfolio and to recognize that when we look back on this period, the dominant stories, whether we like it or not, are not you know the war in Iraq, um, what's happening in Syria, or even Afghanistan. The, the dominant stories of our time are the rise of Asia. China's resurgence as a great power, India's uh, rise, the dramatic sense of potential opportunity and innovation that's sweeping Asia. Unless you live it and understand it, which most Americans don't, it's very difficult to recognize this. And so my mission, what I tried to do was to help in that you know, recognition that the lion's share of the history of the 21st century is going to be written in Asia. And we have to be part of that. The United States of America may have started as a series of ports and cities along the Atlantic Ocean. But for generations, we have also been a nation of the Pacific. Asia and the United States are not separated by this great ocean. We are bound by it. Maybe walk us through a little bit because you actually, you know, the president makes the big speech and you put out a strategy paper and you really move the entire government in this direction, like pretty profoundly. Like not many people, even at senior levels, have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. So maybe tell listeners a little bit of the anatomy of how you convince people to do that. You know, I, it, first of all, it wasn't, it, there were a lot of people that I, that I think shared this view. Yeah. I think the people that were most effective and mm. important that shared this view were Tom Donlan at the White House. We made this determination that in fact we were underinvested so that we would turn our attention to Asia going forward. Uh, Jake Sullivan at the State Department. America's role in the Asia Pacific is something that is important to us and to our security. And then there are a few others that also really recognized that we needed to reinvest 
in many elements of our strategy. So maybe let's talk a little bit about sort of personalities, because you had yeah. an opportunity to meet some very people. interesting people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you met Xi Jinping when he was the vice president. And if I'm not mistaken, you went to I Iowa did. with yeah. Joe Biden I, and Xi Jinping. I told Vice President Xi his visit to Iowa tomorrow will assure him more delegates than I got the last time I was there. <laughs> Biden was not on that part of the trip, ah. but I was mm -hmm. with then Vice President Xi throughout his trip to the United States. Call it heartland diplomacy. After 27 years, the Chinese government's heir apparent is returning to the American Midwest. Iowa Governor Terry Branstad was serving his first stint as governor when she came in 85. The two met again last fall in Beijing, and Branstad says the next Chinese leader said he wanted to come back. I saw him a lot, traveled with him, was at breakfast and dinner, and really got to see uh, get a sense of what he was like as a man and many of the things that I suspected or wondered about have come to fruition as he's become more entrenched in power. So what does that mean? Like, what did you see yeah. in him? Well, you know, a variety of things. The, the, the first thing I would say is he has a steely confidence in himself. He doesn't much trust or believe he needs the counsel of people around him. So he really is quite reliant on his sense of, you know, what to do. He is impatient, very impatient, like, let's get to it kind of thing. He is hard. He's a very hard man, unsentimental, I would say. You know, we went to places that he had been to as a young person in the United States. She, who met with President Obama on Tuesday, wants to see the McLeans again, along with about 17 others he met on his trip 27 years ago. He was unsentimental about it completely. Hmm. When the briefings came up about economics, he was not very interested, which was I found fascinating. He liked big things, building things. He likes infrastructure. He likes displays of power and, you know, construction. In a couple of meetings, he revealed pretty clearly that he's deeply ideological. I think in, he's, in some respects, kind of the last believer in China, but man, <laughs> is he a believer and really thinks that there is a role for the party uh, as he goes forward. But I also got the unmistakable sense that on some level, as he traveled around the United States, he was taking our measure. Mm -hmm. And I thought he might have come away with the conclusion that there was evidence and elements of what he would interpret as, as American decline. And so I think actually that trip had a significant impact on how he thought about the United States. And I think as a leader, he believed this is China's time. Mm -hmm. And China has now fully arrived on the international scene. So how has that translated in your view and how he's policy and how he's behaved? Well, yeah. first of all, the Belt and Road Initiative yeah. is basically all about infrastructure, big infrastructure projects. China's Belt and Road Initiative is the most expensive infrastructure project in history. Chinese companies are building roads, pipelines, and railroads around the world. But the initiative is also building China's influence. If you go to any country on China's periphery and you look at the bridges and the train stations and the power plants, it's just remarkable. It's a, just a remarkable set of, of foundational projects. And it's reshaping the politics of South Asia. Here on the outskirts of Bandung, the commuter train is old and slow. 
But now, cutting through the hills that lead to Indonesia's capital, Jakarta, there's a tunnel for a high-speed train. And the engineers and managers who lead this $6 billion project are Chinese. I think second, I don't think I would have anticipated how much he would go it alone. But clearly, he has done so. So the previous Chinese leaders, um, beginning after Mao Zedong, their biggest contribution, Ilan, is not just the remarkable achievements of the Chinese economy, but they basically put in place mechanisms that would prevent the emergence of another leader like Mao Zedong, who made all his decisions, often in a capricious, unilateral way, without the benefit of his compatriots. A huge personality cult of Mao is at the center of the revolution. While other party opponents are removed from the office, Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, and her close associates are giving important posts. And so, a succession of Chinese leaders had labored to create an interlocking, intertwining leadership structure in which all major decisions were debated, discussed, and taken in a collective manner. So what Xi Jinping, his primary contribution is not just the anti-corruption drive, which is, has racked China at senior levels, but what, has, what he's also done over the course of the last five or six years is basically thoroughly and completely dismantled collective leadership. In China's parliament, the National People's Congress has just approved a constitutional amendment to abolish presidential term limits. President Xi, already one of the most powerful Chinese leaders in decades, will now be able to rule indefinitely, perhaps, perhaps. So almost every decision he takes by himself. And he has demonstrated a ruthlessness, both the ability to go after rivals, but also to root out relentlessly and ruthlessly what he perceives and the party would perceive as corruption uh, in its ranks. Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign uh, is um, not according to the criminal procedure, the rule of law, um, but you know, uh, full of uh, torture, arbitrary detention, and uh, led by the, uh, the, the party uh, discipline inspection uh, department. The last thing I would say, and you have to say this carefully, you know, you don't realize that there was a generation of Chinese leaders that during their formative years, they were not at university. They were essentially out doing stuff during the Cultural Revolution, yeah. you know, in the fields. The Red Guards travel all over the country, smashing the old culture, destroying much of the cultural heritage. They spearhead the interrogation, humiliation, and beatings of teachers, intellectuals, and traditional enemies of the state. And I don't think he has a tremendous amount of like rigorous education. Yeah. Um, and his instincts tend more towards narrow political calculations. And he's a pretty much win-lose guy, you know. Muslims from Xinjiang to Beijing have long complained of state suppression, but now they say Chinese repression is stronger than ever. In Xinjiang's Kashgar, where Chairman Mao looms over the city, Chinese police are accused by human rights groups of creating the world's most extensive surveillance. Uyghurs are native. I, I will also say, like we have felt with every Chinese leader, you know, that there was some potential for reform and economic revitalization, but I don't think we've seen any of that. I think, if anything, he's doubled down on more traditional 
state-owned enterprises and sort of state-run uh, initiatives rather than entrepreneurial pursuits. One more sort of thing sure. I want to talk to you about in terms of China. You know, the incident in 2012 uh, involving uh, Chen Guan, Guan Cheng. Chen Guan Cheng. Chen Guan Cheng, yeah. yeah. I'm, you have a Middle East guy That's doing right. this uh, Asia right. interview. I was like, oh, God. Like, usually I'm good with the names, <laughs> but not today. You're doing, um, You're doing good. But, uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, but you were very involved in that, yeah. and it sort of reflects another part of our relationship with China. Yeah. But maybe tell us a story of that. So he, he, at the time, was probably the one or two most famous dissidents back when China had dissidents. Chen Guangchen has now become a symbol of human rights abuses in China and an online blog sensation. The trademark dark glasses, now donned by thousands, sending in portrait after portrait in solidarity. And he was referred to in China as the barefoot lawyer. It means he's never had the chance to go to law school. He's never really had a chance to study law except on his own. But he's somebody who applies what he's learned uh, in real life. He was poor, he was not of the elite, and he tended to represent and agitate around issues associated with minorities, with the poor. He was very vocal on forced abortions. Local lawyers rejected him. There was no money in the cases he brought them, and there was danger for them. Their living depended on getting along with the local officials, but Chun needed somebody who could sue the local officials. So he is was under a kind of house arrest outside of Beijing, and he was blind, but managed with the help of others to escape and then make his way to Beijing. And then, you know, through a variety of steps, he got into the American embassy. We move overseas now in the mystery surrounding a blind Chinese dissident who escaped from house arrest last week. Despite speculation that Chen Guangcheng has found refuge in the U.S. Embassy, there's no official word tonight from either side. All this happens just before a visit by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And then I remember like laying out to the secretary and to the team in the White House, here are our options. Here's, and I, you know, everyone has their skills and their downsides. Yeah. One of my few skills is I think clearly and well in the middle of it, the initial period of a crisis. And then the next thing I know, you know, literally I went back to my office, I got a call a half an hour later saying, get ready, you're going to get on the next flight and you're going to be the guy responsible for this negotiation in Beijing, which I really did not look forward to. But I understood that the struggle would be, would the Chinese engage with us on this? Because it was right in advance of a big set of meetings between the United States and China. And so I arrived in Beijing. Oh, Mr. Campbell, could you tell us what you're here in Beijing for, please? When a senior American diplomat arrives in Beijing out of schedule, then ducks questions about why, it usually means there's something to hide. In this case, speculation is swirling around this man, Chen Guangcheng. Uh, and then for the next eight to ten days, basically around the clock, negotiations during the day with him, you know, about what he wanted, what he was thinking about, and mostly in the evenings and sometimes late afternoons um, with my Chinese counterparts, which some of them were unbelievably heated and difficult, and I was exhausted. It's interesting, when we started our negotiations, what he wanted most of all was to remain in China. 
and he wanted to be protected in China and have the opportunity to play a role in the evolution of Chinese civil society. And he wanted that opportunity with a kind of loose protection by the United States. From the beginning, all of our efforts with Mr. Chen have been guided by his choices and our values. It sounds, frankly, naive now when you even state it, it seems crazy. But at the time, it was something he thought about and he believed that people who'd left China lost their ability to influence the course of events in China. And that was extremely important to him. He, he did not want to leave China. So we negotiated really hard a set of conditions that would allow him to remain in China at a university and you know, study and then, and then spend some time in the United States as a fellow. It was hard to negotiate and we got support from American universities to basically get it done. And we asked him, are you absolutely certain that this is what you want? And he said, yes. And so we all piled into a van one afternoon and we went to the hospital. He was going to be, he, he escaped and climbed over a fence, broke his ankle. So he had to get some medical treatment. He was going to be in the he hospital. He was just hanging out in the embassy with a broken yeah, ankle, yeah. unable to really get medical treatment. Yeah. I mean, it was, he was bandaged up and we'd yeah. helped him, but he needed to be in a hospital for a little bit. And so we took him you know, there, and I remember in the van, I remember this extremely critically. I remember where I was sitting, and he was in the middle, and we were you know, kind of racing to the hospital, and we gave him cell phones, and so he immediately started to call his friends in the United States and elsewhere. And to a person, every single person, basically said, you've made a terrible mistake. You should get the hell out of there. Like, you're not gonna be safe you're gonna be harassed, this is a terrible decision. And so the ride from the embassy to the hospital that he was gonna stay was basically an hour and 10 minutes. And I huh. saw through the course of that ride that this was not gonna work. A smiling Chen Guangcheng is seen here leaving the embassy for treatment at the hospital, but between leaving the US grounds and speaking to us, everything changed. But of course, he's out of the embassy, the yeah. safe for the confines of the embassy. So we've lost a lot of leverage. Um, and he's a very cunning, capable guy. And so he immediately got online with, you know, he had a lot of supporters on Capitol Hill and others, and essentially said that he had been pressured to leave the embassy, essentially. I'm very disappointed with the US government, he says. Chen now claims he was urged to leave and then deserted. You know, and that he wanted the ability to come back to the United States. So, of course, immediately it's like you look oh, at the God. negotiator and like, oh, you know, that's your responsibility. He has been reaching out to supporters in the U.S. by phone. His heart sounds very heavy. He, she said, please help. Uh, and uh, we're really, um, you know, in danger. So I was initially just, you know, beside myself. I remember kind of in a melodramatic way offering my my resignation to Secretary Clinton, like, you know, someone's gonna take and he's she's like, Stop it, let's get back to work. You know, like don't be don't be ridiculous. It's not a movie, you know, kind of thing. And so we went back, unbelievably challenging negotiations with the Chinese. Over the course of the day, uh, progress has been made to help him have the future that he wants. Uh, and uh, we will uh, be staying in touch with him uh, as this uh, 
process moves forward. He left uh, China about two or three weeks after that. Chen Guangcheng has finally won his freedom and is on a plane to the United States. Chen's escape from house arrest embarrassed security officials. It's unlikely he'll ever be allowed back into China. Chen himself has said that he has very mixed feelings despite his newfound freedom. He said that he's saddened to go because there's so much unfinished work for him back home. Uh, he, he came and studied and was at NYU for a while and, and now, as he feared, has largely slipped from view and I think mm. plays a very modest role at best in the trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship. So can we maybe shift and talk about your time in Burma uh, and your engagements with the Ensang Suu Kyi? Again, just an incredible experience. You know, the United States government had basically failed for decades to have any kind of relationship with the Burmese junta who were in power. Aung San Suu Kyi had been under house arrest in various manifestations for a couple of decades. Aung San Suu Kyi was once offered her freedom by the junta if she'd simply leave the country. Instead, she chose to stay and has endured everything in the hope of bringing about change. And so we had to sell it in the interagency. And many of the people on the left were like, no, we can't let these guys out of their you know, sanctions pit. I am announcing today that President Clinton has decided to impose a ban on new investment by Americans in Burma. The decision is based on the president's judgment. But in fact, you know, our ability to use sanctions to that level was not apparent. And so we argued inside government that we wanted to have a, an attempt to sit down and try to talk a way forward with the junta. So I met with some of the leaders quietly at the United Nations in um, 2010. And that set in motion a series of private interactions that involved Aung San Suu Kyi, but also the senior <laughs> generals. And so, you know, the generals at that time that ran Burma seven or eight, and they were numbered one through nine, one through eight. I met all of them. And so it's just an incredible experience. They were all deeply secretive and, and brutal. You know, the Burma, Myanmar, is a country of, that's highly divided of ethnic minorities and, you know, has been riven by conflict for decades. This is the ugly face of military repression the generals who control Myanmar have tried so hard to cover up. There was a general view at that time that the potential mother of the nation would be Aung San Suu Kyi, and that if she were allowed out, that she would lead the country to a sort of a gleaming democracy. You know, you must not underestimate our people. I may be the figurehead of the organization, but they are in this movement because they believe in it, not because of me and they take full responsibility for their own deeds. And those who are supporting the NLD are not supporting me. They are supporting the movement for democracy. I remember the first time I met her, you know, she was released from house arrest for three hours and driven to this Russian hotel on Lake Irrawaddy where I was waiting. And we'd set up the room and, you know, I, I can still remember the wood on the floor and there was a table in the middle of the room and we had exactly two hours and 30 minutes 
of dialogue with her about the way forward, and it was the most interesting discussion I ever had with anyone. Huh. We began with a discussion of why is the junta interested in opening to the West now? So we went through the different theories. Was it economic deprivation? Was it fear of China? Was it a sense that you know there was a new possibility with the United States? Were they falling behind other ASEAN states? And we, I think we concluded together that it was a combination of the above. I found her incredibly interesting, extremely charismatic, steely determination and discipline, and tough as nails. It was amazing to see today the Secretary of State arm in arm with a woman who has been a prisoner in her own country. I remember the opening when Secretary of State Clinton went to Burma for the first time. And we orchestrated this sit-down dinner between Aung San Suu Kyi and Hillary Clinton for the first time. The two most, you could argue, the two most powerful women in the world, right? Secretary Clinton was in Burma, a country in the grip of a brutal military regime, standing alongside opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi. The United States has been staunch in its support of the democracy movement in Burma. And we are confident that this support will continue through the difficult years that lie ahead. And, you know, since then, some of the hope and the gleaming possibility of Burma, Myanmar has really faded. The tragedy of the Rohingya is an international travesty. UN experts say Myanmar's army acted with genocidal intent when, in 2017, troops forced out more than 740,000 Rohingya. These refugees tell horrific stories of rape and murder. The abhorrent situation can't be underestimated, right? And her voice has been tragically missing or muffled. For years, she's denied that Myanmar has been persecuting the Rohingya. I don't think there's ethnic cleansing going on. I think ethnic cleansing is too strong a, an expression to use for what's happening. But I think, you know, much of the gleam that she enjoyed in the West has disappeared much of the hope for a new kind of relationship between Myanmar and the United States has largely evaporated. The U.S. has imposed sanctions on several top Myanmar military leaders for what it calls the ethnic cleansing of Rohingya Muslims. And it's the strongest response Washington has taken over the issue. Do you think we did the right thing in opening up with Burma? Do you like yeah, but but it, yes, but I just think it's a constant reminder that fu the future and the trajectory of life is not always positive. I think the democratic process in Burma is going to be unbelievably painful, and it's going to take decades. But that process has started. There is a spirit of debate and openness inside the country that was absent for decades. So maybe one final question for you. Mm -hmm. like, where do you think now the U.S. goes in terms of Asia? Like, where are we going going forward? Where's oh, Asia going? That's a great question. I mean, so I, I, I guess I'll end with this. I think a recurring theme of Asia, basically beginning almost immediately after the Second World War, uh, at the time of the Korean War, is the idea that the United States was in the middle of a hurtling decline and on our way out of Asia. So after the Korean War, there was a sense of failure. At the end of the Vietnam War, a palpable sense of American retreat. 
at the end of the Cold War, a sense that both the United States and the Soviet Union had lost and Japan had won. At the end of the global economic crisis, a sense that the United States had lectured us for decades about how to do things the right way financially, and it turns out that we were worse than anyone else involved. So the recurring theme is a fear and a view of American decline. But in each of these periods, we have been able to demonstrate a hidden set of resources, ability to recreate ourselves, to re reinvigorate our industries, to launch new and innovative areas of interaction like IT. And that has been the case for decades. And so people who've bet against the United States lose a lot of money, right? So we have more staying power, more competence, and an ability to endure much more than people think. So right now, across Asia, there are many questions about American staying power and whether we're you know, in the process of withdrawing from Asia. And so I take some comfort from these previous periods because I know how quickly that situation can reverse and we can find ourselves again uh, viewed as a dominant player in the Asia-Pacific region. I think the president there are some things, I think being tougher on China in certain areas makes sense, but I believe the primary focus on our approach in Asia has been around military stuff, and our military role is a secondary role. Ironically, it's Asians want a strong, as I said, optimistic, engaged America. And so we'll have to basically demonstrate a multifaceted approach that involves diplomacy, people to people, you name it, focus on climate. I think we have the wherewithal to do that, and I'm hopeful about the period ahead. But I will tell you, like many of us in those dark hours, occasionally I have questions and wonder, you know, you can't keep proving the second guessers wrong. At some point, you really will be in the midst of decline. But I still think we have a lot in store. That's Kurt Campbell, who served as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs during the Obama administration. He was also the co-founder of CNAS and today serves as the chairman of our board. Next time on Stories from the Back Channel, what's it like to target terrorists from the front lines in Afghanistan to corporate conference rooms in Silicon Valley? We talked to CNAS fellow and former intelligence analyst Kara Frederick. The commander, uh, given that you're sitting on his right hand, will turn to you and he'll say, Kara, is this our guy? And you have to look him in the eye and you have to say, yeah, it's him. You know, you're dealing with life and death in that situation. So, so yeah, it's a heavy burden to bear, but I think there's a lot of people up to the task, and I was at the time. Stories from the Back Channel is a production of the Center for New American Security and is produced by RES Audio. I'm Elon Goldenberg, and I've been your host. If you like what you hear, Please subscribe to our podcast, and while you're there, leave us a review.